Hello and welcome to the next instalment of MediaTel Conversations, a podcast brought to you by MediaTel. Our aim is to bring you the biggest names in the media industry to discuss the most important news topics of the day, as well as allow them to tell their story. This week, the CEO of the Festival of Media, Jeremy King, sits down with Tony Effick, the Senior Vice President of Client Strategy at NBC Universal, to discuss how seeking out the objective difference will be the secret to your success and how it helped him break down barriers. Welcome, everybody. We are about to do a wonderful interview with uh, Tony Effick, who is based out in New York and is the SVP for Client Strategy at NBC Universal and is the founder of Black and Brilliant. So over the next 20 minutes, as long as I can keep this to time, I'm going to do my best to extrapolate uh, as much insight out of Tony as I possibly can. And he's certainly been involved in some interesting projects and initiatives over the last few years. So I would love to get as much out of that as we possibly can. Can. My name is Jeremy King. I run the Festival of Media and I'm very proud to be doing this interview today. So, Tony, let's go straight in. I think the best place to start is how would you describe objective difference? I mean, it's really interesting. I love the concept. How would you best describe that? Yes, it's really funny because if you'd asked me this maybe a year ago, I don't know if I could come up with a really good answer. I think I was doing it my whole life, my whole working life anyway. And it wasn't like I had a moment of a flash of inspiration. I just think it was an aggregate thing over time. But I think the best way to bring it to life was that I had a mate of mine back in the day in London and um, he, he had the best job in the world. He was a music editor of a magazine. And he got to go to concerts and gigs and this and that, and he loved it. And everyone was so jealous of what he did. But he then got a new editor (laughs) who had different taste and different judgment and kind of just got somebody else in. And that was tough for him. And I remember encountering a lot of experiences like this where people were in businesses or jobs that there was a lot of subjective judgment being made. And, you know, because one person, red is bad to somebody and blue is bad to another person and tall versus short, you know. And so, you know, and in business, we're all replaceable. But I felt that there are certain professions or certain types of skills that made you less likely to be replaced. You had more control. And, um, and I think it's the same reason why immigrant families ask their kids to study the professions like accountancy and law and engineering. And that's because there are kind of certified ways, objective ways of getting into them. And I kind of felt that I wanted to write my own story. I wanted a little bit more control than some of my mates had had and and, and even family. Um, And that's where Objective Difference was born. And it kind of has, uh, it's about writing your own story. It's about believing in yourself. And it's about making bets on yourself in the future of your business and your industry. And it really has, um, if you you don't mind me going into it a little bit, um, it has about five components to it. So the first one is this idea of, and I remember uh, when the internet appeared. Uh, this is the first time I started thinking about it. I was working <laughs> in advertising at the, in an agency, but publishing agency. And, and I said to myself, this is really exciting. I want to do this thing. That's what I'm going to do. And so for me, the first pillar of objective difference is identifying the next big thing in your industry. Okay. And knowing it and seeing it when you, and having an idea of what it is and whether it's important enough. But, 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 but the thing about it is that sometimes people pick things that are not really defensible, that you can't really. So Warren Buffett, the investor, has this quote he says about a good business has a moat around it, it's protected. You want to kind of figure out hard things to do, not easy things to do. So identifying the next big thing in, in your industry for me is the first pillar. The second thing is become an expert in it. Don't just talk it, 
become an expert in it. So when social media came along, which was the next big thing after the web really kicked in, I really threw myself into it. I started a blog about it. I started to bring it into my work to the point where I became the chair of the IAB Social Media Council and I became the voice for social media in the UK for a year or so. So becoming an expert in it is really important. And I think then you need to be very clear about what your personal brand is. What do you stand for? What do you want? The world's not going to remember everything about you. It's probably going to remember one thing that you do well at work. And that thing that you've made a bet on should be that thing. Okay. And so, you know, know what to go for and what not to go for. There's just certain things you're not going to be good at and certain things that the world's not going to give you credit for. And you've got to know as well that that thing probably doesn't stay in market for very long. Like I remember in the early days of the internet, if you could develop flash websites. You can write your own. Do you remember that stuff? I knew you giggled at that one. You can write your own check. But if you decided just to stay doing flash websites into the 2000s, you know, definitely into the last few years, then it was all over because then it got replaced by other technology. And so lifelong learning is the next pillar. It's like you've got to commit to constantly rethink what it is that's important to you and then learn these new things. And I've been through about four or five cycles of that. And I talk about this idea of having a suitcase where you go from place to place, you know, each part of your journey. And you kind of need to know what you need to put in that suitcase. And lifelong learning is the thing that helps you do that. And then keep on track because as, as I said, about, you know, the world catches up and you have to keep doing the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So that's kind of it. It's like figuring out what you think is going to be important making a bet against it, equipping yourself to do it. That's it. That's my kind of like, I wouldn't say my short <laughs> answer to that. Uh, but there you have it. It's, as I say that, I, I probably, a couple more shots of this and I might be able to explain it in a short way. Tony, that's, that's, that's a great explanation. And I think actually it brings out so many questions and actually what you've said, we could probably sit here all day and discuss, which is, which is wonderful. But one of the things I really kind of wanted to pick out on was that fact that all of those things you spoke about here all require being brave and i suppose one of the the key things is everyone talks about yes you need to be brave you need to be bold but to be actually able to do it professionally and personally is is a kind of different matter right so you know what are the kind of the biggest challenges you found to trying to ensure you I, I identify these new things becoming an expert and and understanding how and when to go for it and, and when to jump off how have you kind of you know how have, have you done that <laughs> yeah um it's funny because I, I'd, I'd say to you that yeah i think courage is a part of it you know courage is definitely a part of it and I think there comes a time, not just in your work life, but you, you know what it's like, in, in, even in your personal life, where sometimes doing nothing feels worse than the risk of failing at something. Are you with me? When you tally it all up and you say to yourself, okay, uh, if I stay doing what I'm doing, do, am I going to feel worse or better than if I take the leap? And even if I fail and take the leap, it might still feel okay. Are you with me? And you kind of do that. And that process sounds very logical and rational, but actually it starts deep inside in a very visceral and emotional way because you just don't feel right about something. Either you feel bad about the status quo, you feel uncomfortable about it, or you're frustrated by it. And then you then get to a place where you start to weigh up the risk rewards. And so for me, it's a logical process. It starts emotionally about how you feel about yourself and you have to be honest with yourself about how you're feeling. But for me, it then becomes a social process. You know, my main advisor is my wife, so nothing gets <laughs> done until she <laughs> gets a little bit fed up by it. Sometimes we don't, we don't we circle an idea and, uh, and you know, she's the first person I speak to, but I have a kind of a board of directors of friends who I go to who are allies 
from all different walks of life. And, you know, if it, I'll pitch ideas. I say how I'm feeling about stuff. And then, and this, this is a little bit geeky, but it kind of works for me. I will frequently actually get into an Excel spreadsheet into a scorecard and actually say, stay, go left, right, up, down, and, and look at the dimensions of it and just do it. So it just forces me to be analytical. But the thing is, it starts off very emotionally. And then I think ultimately you become brave when doing nothing feels worse than the risk of failing. So that's kind of how I've done things. And, and I'm not, I'm pretty risk averse actually day to day. I, I just, I, because we talked about this because I, I have nightmares of not having a safety net and landing on the ground and back to square one. So every time I do take some kind of a risk, it's super calculated. Have you found being brave as a black man more difficult in media, in life? How have you, you know, faced some of the barriers? Because I'm, I'm sure you have. Like, you know, we only have to yeah. look at Black Lives Matters and everything that's happening around the world now. And, and, you know, you thought that something that was potentially stamped out in the 80s and the 90s is, has risen again and it's kind of been suppressed. I mean, how, you know, how, how hard has it been as a, as a black man trying to do that? It's interesting because it changes where you are in the world. <laughs> so I was going to say, um, I, I'm, you know, I was born in Nigeria, grew up in South London, didn't come to the States until I was in, in my 30s. Yeah, so, um, and I've been here um, for, for about, about the last 10 years. Um, it depends where you are and it depends. And as my career has gone and it really changes, I've worked in Korea, I've worked in Germany, I've been on, done business in all sorts of places. And I think one of the things is, is that whoever you are, regardless of your ethnicity or where you come from, there's always a moment at work where you feel, I might have been fairly treated. Was I given a good shot? Do I deserve that promotion? How did that person judge me in a certain type of way? Doesn't matter what color you are. Doesn't matter where you come from. Everyone has that moment. Now, when you're black, though, you got to amplify that. Because <laughs> even when you're doing well or doing badly, you've got this other thing that you have to interpret. You know, is it? Because it, it could be sometimes. I just There have been people who felt that they deserve the promotion, an opportunity, a job. I'm like, well, it might not be for that reason. So, but sometimes it, it frequently is for that reason. And so there's this idea of double consciousness that you have to just operate on one level like everyone else, but you then sometimes have to take a step back and look at things at another level as well, which is the, just the black conscious level. I'll give you some examples of that. So frequently when I travel around the world, particularly domestically here in the US, a lot of colleagues of mine will go running in the morning, wherever neighborhood and wherever city they do, they just go for a jog, yeah? Depending where I go, I just, I wouldn't do that <laughs> because you don't know where you're going to end up. Okay. And if you end up in somebody, we saw this the shooting uh, of the unarmed um, jogger. I forgot what state that was in. I think that was in Georgia. He was just going running one day in the neighborhood and then he ended up dead. And I know that's a pretty gruesome example, but I could name other examples like that around how you navigate and how you behave. So you, you do have to think about this stuff. And I think when it comes to being brave, specifically around work, um, you, I've seen some examples of people who have no fear around risk and jump and do things and move around very freely who are black, but you tend to have to be super careful about everything, every decision you make, a little bit more careful because you might be out of work for longer, it might take you a little bit more to kind of move up different levels, etc. So the calculations are just a little bit more intense. Wow. So that's that's part of it. So you have to you you constantly have to think about all of these other dimensions. You're thinking about everything everyone else is thinking about, which is a handful anyway. And then you sometimes have to step back and then look at it this way. And do we, you know, we're often cited the media industry as an industry that 
is I wouldn't go, no way are we inclusive as we could possibly be inclusive. But do you find that as an industry, we are further ahead of, say, other sectors and other industries that, you know, you've happened to come across in a personal profession and a professional? Yeah, it's funny that because I think we feel that because you walk around most media companies and offices and stuff, agencies, media companies, and everyone's liberal, everyone's, you know, usually casually dressed and, you know, and everyone looks and feels as if they, you know, that that would be their outlook. And it depends on the country. When you look at the statistics, though, and I haven't been in the UK market for a while, though obviously I visit to see family, you see the statistics tell you something slightly different. So if you look at in the US specifically, where I have looked at the numbers, Department of Labor Statistics published studies of the proportion of people that work in management professional levels by ethnicity. So for advertising in the US, the latest numbers that were published is 0.7% of blacks are employed in management professional and advertising, whilst it's 6% for architecture and engineering, and 12.7% wow. medicine. You see the pattern here? Going back to my point, yeah. immigrant families choose things like architecture and engineering and medicine because they know they get the entry point. So I think there is a demand and a supply side. So I was talking to a guy the other day who studied just up the road, um, Pratt Institute, which is just literally in the red I live on in Brooklyn. And he said, normally people like that go on to be creative directors at big agencies. And he said he walked around some agencies and he just didn't feel he had a shot. So he went in a completely different direction. So sometimes on the demand side, the supply side, people who want to do the jobs are feel that they don't have access. At least that's the perception here in the US. And then on the demand side, the people doing the hiring, there are other issues attached to that as well. There's that moment when you visit an office, yeah, doesn't matter where in the world, from being at reception to going to the meeting room or going to somebody's office. And when you're a black person, that walk is really interesting because you look around and you see who's in the office. <laughs> and then occasionally right. you see a black person and then they'll look at you and they'll try to work out who's that person and might even nod or whatever. There's a self thing. But for a lot of the time, I walk through the offices in certain types of buildings and companies and countries and you don't see a single soul. It has got better in my time and I think when I visit London and then I look at what's happening in the media business in the UK, I'm seeing a lot of names pop up, you know, that more and more so. Um, still very junior, some mid-level people, but I'm seeing people who I maybe started out with who are now kind of creeping up towards the top, but that's exciting for me. So I see that and I see, see that over here as well, but it's still not what it should be. It's still not the business we want it to be. And on that note, what does the industry need to do? What does advertising in particular need to do? And I totally get it that it is very different in different countries around the world. Yeah, I think there's certain parts of our business that are not going to change. It's a relationship business. It's about people and personalities. Some of my best mates are people I started out with in the business in London. Some of my good mates here, similar type of things. So it's always going to be about relationships. And it's also going to frequently be about network, you know, so let's say, for example, you start a new job, you worked with a bunch of people in, you know, 10 years ago, you know, they're great. Yeah, you're naturally going to try and get those people in, but you can see how that has a knock on effect. Yeah. So I think there's two things I think are pretty destructive to black people in advertising in general. And the first idea you hear about this all the time is this idea of culture fit. <laughs> yeah. Does that person have a culture fit? I've used it. I've done culture fit meetings. I've been interviewed as part of a culture fit meeting. And if you think about it, what does that, what does that really mean? It means is that person one of us, yeah? And what, what we're saying here is like, you don't need culture fit. What you actually need is culture add. Are you with me? You know, so, so innovation comes from having the whole jigsaw puzzle put together, not just 
you know, you can't put a jigsaw puzzle together with all the same pieces, yeah. So, you know, and so what you want is everyone in the room. That's what that means, the whole jigsaw. And we've seen some real blunders in advertising, in, you know, in recent years, um, where, where the right people were not in the room. So that was my first one. Culture fit is one of the big enemies of that. The second enemy of that is this idea of chemistry. You know, so what I mean by that is like, particularly in the agency side, they get, we actually call them, we call them chemistry meetings between a supplier, yeah. an agency, and an advertiser. And what does that really mean? It means firms on the client side want to hire agencies, and agencies therefore want to hire people that seem to have a kind of chemistry together, that the client's going to get on with the, the agency lead, or if you're in the media side, the sales lead is going to get on with the buyers, and, and so on and so forth. And I think that, that that's wrong because it makes a judgment about, because a lot of the time people are making surface judgments about what it is that get, make two people kind of connect. And that is more of an issue over here because, you know, whilst, I mean, in England, we all watched the Top of the Pops on the first day. You know, we all, we all knew the same songs. We all support the same teams. There was just much more of a meld. And I think it's a little bit more exacerbated over here. The issues in the UK are slightly different. They're not because people are not sharing, you know, the same cultural upbringing. Whilst I think here there's sometimes a little bit of a disconnect around it. But I think they're making judgments of a very narrow perspective because, you know, you can be different but share the same interests. Okay. And so people are picking people because of chemistry from their network, from nepotism, from alliances that go back years and it just further perpetuates that. And I think there's also a problem with the word chemistry anyway, because I think people, you know, I was kind of like quite into it when I was at school studying and I, and I think the word's misused, you know, so for example, if you just have iron on its own, it rusts, yeah? Put a little yep. bit of carbon in there and you get steel, yeah? If you add oxygen and oxygen, you just get oxygen, <laughs> you know? And so chemistry for me is about bringing different things together to actually not to create chemistry, but to create alchemy. You turn something, you know, nothing into something, etc. And so when you don't do that and everyone's exactly the same, you get groupthink. And that's when you get executional mistakes. And I, and I think part of why the advertising industry has maybe lost a little bit of its mojo, you know, since this heyday is because we're not, as a business, bringing in the best and brightest from every field. We've got, don't get me wrong, there's super talented people in the business, but there's a bunch of other people that should have come into the business as well that are not at the table in the room. <laughs> Actually, it's really interesting because you think you're absolutely right. The chemistry means the culture fit that almost comes from a client level down, doesn't it? Like they're yeah, almost yeah. like, actually, this is who we want to fit with. So from a, an educational point of view, it's probably something that has to start right at the top, doesn't it? In terms of the ecosystem of the industry and then filter its way down so that everyone buys into it. Yeah, it doesn't work if it doesn't come from the top. It's that simple. I mean, you can do as much stuff at the grassroots as you like, but if it's not at the very top and even more importantly, it's not even just the top of the clients. It's coming from the top of the investors, shareholders, Wall Street, the city. One of the things I'm interested in is that there are environmental standards now around who you invest with, yeah? If certain companies are polluting the earth, yeah. investors are not gonna put money into that. They'll lose a percentage point here or there on yield. I believe we should be doing the same with diversity. So the money should be following companies that are progressive, are thinking about stakeholders, the community, the country, as well as the environment, other issues, um, gender equality. And I think it starts from there. It got pushes into leadership of corporations. Leadership of corporations should be thinking about the next wave of talent. And that next wave of talent should be outside of their existing networks. And we should be training and cultivating people.
Now, Tony, this this is such a great conversation, and I, I can literally talk on and on for this for for a long time because I've got I've got a whole bunch of other questions in my head. Yeah. But one thing, and I know you touched on it, and it would just be if one thing to take away from this, besides everything else you've given us so far, is what can we do as individuals who aren't part of necessarily an ethnic group who what we do to make inclusivity and the world and the industry more inclusive what one thing would you suggest that we could do <laughs> wow okay yeah so what we're trying to do at black and brilliant is essentially recognize the fact that we need to be a network it's a global network there's talent of all sorts of all backgrounds of all levels and i think the thing people need to do is when you're in that room and in that meeting and you look around if everybody is not representing in that room if that room doesn't have black, black person in that room, there is an issue, particularly if you're in certain cities in the world. Okay, so you're going to get creativity, you're going to get innovation, you're going to get ideas by making sure everyone is in a room. So look around the room. That's the first thing. Now, I know, for example, for many, many years, I was the only person in the room and I got used to that. I, you know, I just accepted that I'm going to be the only one in the room. So I'm not blaming anyone because that's just the convention and the norm. But increasingly, we need to be re-looking at networks, reaching out to different people and connecting in different ways. Because the truth of the matter is, and the thing about Black and Brilliant, that the whole idea of it was to show that there is a pipeline of talent waiting. I've had lots of people, bosses, who said there's not enough talent out there. There's not enough Black talent out there, that there's a pipeline problem. But at the same time, I've known lots of black and brilliant people who said there's not a lot of opportunity out there. So, you know, and both of them might be in their minds telling the truth. They could both be telling the truth. So for me, what we need to do is to see this as a business process problem and fix that pipeline problem. That's the thing I'm singularly focused on. And that's what black and brilliant is focused on. So it's about making sure everyone's in the room. Thank you. Very much, Tony. I apologise, we've run out of time. I've, I've gone over again some fantastic points for everyone here to take away. And as a real good insight and an eye opener. I just wanted to say thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us. And uh, if it were a live audience, I would now say let's have a round of applause for Tony. And if you've got any questions, put your hand in the air. But uh, if you do have any questions, I'm sure the team at MediaTel will fill them back to Tony. Let's have a, a virtual round of applause for Tony. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. it was a, this was fun. Appreciate it, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Make sure to subscribe for all future episodes as we deliver more MediaTel Conversations.